Hello and welcome to another edition of our Thirsty Podcast. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. My name is Jeremy Lightnin, and I am here with Emperor Zerg from Toy Story, the uh, arch nemesis of uh, Buzz Lightyear. Who I, just did, watched, who I just watched uh, Toy Story 3 the other day. And, and, and then, uh, spoiler alert, uh, they find out that Emperor Zerg is actually Buzz Lightyear's father, uh, much like the uh, ugly sweater that you're wearing right now, uh, which it, maybe I shouldn't call it ug an ugly sweater. It cannot be an ugly sweater if it is a Star Wars sweater. It, it, it's That's an oxymoron. It is a beautiful green Star Wars sweater with... Green and red. Top, yeah, with the next wing fighter on it, yep. All uh, uh, Christmas spirit. He was just playing for me a minute ago, a uh, mashup of the Carol of the Bells with the Imperial Death March that uh, they, they both can actually fit together in a, a sort of harmonious way. And that is exactly the kind of music that we play at my house, which is lovingly called on Facebook, the Zarling Jedi Temple. Um, just so long as uh, we, it, you don't expect us to be playing it in church. That's, no, we uh, won't do that in church. But That won't be for the Christmas season at, at, at Water of Life. Um, today we are going to be looking at uh, four chapters of the book of Hebrews, uh, chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. And uh, what were some of your thoughts about uh, these chapters? I know we're going to take up the topic of Melchizedek again. Uh, but uh, there's some other things in here, too. Well, I think the big thing is that we had l ended the last few chapters in that the writer is saying that there was the milk of God's word that he was giving to the, the people, to these Jewish Christians, because they weren't ready for meat. And now he's going to lay out some of those uh, milk teachings. And uh, he does that in the first two verses, talking about repentance, uh, dead works, which are unable to accomplish anything, washings that probably refer to new to the teaching that new Christians are going to be uh, distinguishing between the sacrament of baptism and other ceremonial applications of water from the Old Testament, uh, the laying on of hands. That's probably what you and I would do as pastors on to confirmands, the resurrection dead, eternal judgment. And so uh, just carrying over from what we talked about in the last chapters of now he's laying out the milk and then that milk he's going to be laying out is how Jesus is superior to Melchizedek or he's actually uh, like Melchizedek, he's greater than the Old Testament priests, greater than the tabernacle and so forth. Uh I forgot to set the scene visibly here for myself as well. I just wanted to, it, it does no good for me to put on this yarmulke if, uh, if I don't tell the listeners about it. We don't have a video feed, so I am for the book of Hebrews. Uh, I'm wearing my uh, yarmulke from the Holy Land, and we are here once again in my uh, classroom at uh, Shoreland Lutheran High School. Uh, it seems that the students in the hallways are not quite as rambunctious as they were last week. They're all getting ready and, and taking seriously their Christmas concert this evening, so that might be part of the reason why uh, we don't hear much from them around. But I, I don't want to just rush right past these opening verses either, wh where you were talking about the milk and the uh, solid food, um, because I think it would be very easy for uh, people 
uh, who come from a, a non-Lutheran or non-Catholic type of background to uh, read these verses where it, the writer of Hebrews is sort of um, saying that the, there's there are mature teachings and there are less mature teachings. Uh, and the less mature teachings, he includes this teaching about baptisms. And I know you did uh, kind of explain it just there, but just in case anybody uh, w was zoned out a little bit when you were talking about that, uh, what would you respond to uh, somebody from a, an anti-sacramental type of a church background who points to a passage like this and says, well, see, this baptism isn't so important because... Uh, verse 2 says it, it, it includes baptisms in uh, the whole discussion of less mature teachings. Well, I think there, I don't know if they would understand this, but what I was talking about earlier from my study, the baptisms plural is probably talking about uh, not necessarily a, the sacrament of baptism, but more the ceremonial application of water from the Old Testament uh, that were not sacraments, you know, the ceremonial washings that they would have to do if they were coming into contact with blood or a dead body and so forth. Yeah, and I didn't mean, I certainly don't want to give anybody the impression that I was uh, tuned out while you were talking about that. It, it's just that I, I have heard people um, bring this passage up as, as a way to try to criticize or undermine baptism, so I, I wanted to take some time to focus on that, and I think basically your answer that you're giving here boils down to the plural, which I think it is a really good answer because whenever, um, th whenever the scriptures talk about baptism, the sacrament, it's it's a singular. It's a singular. There's one baptism, um, uh, and uh, it kind of goes back to that doctrine doctrines thing again. Um, there, there's only one Christ, one baptism, and so if we're talking about baptisms, then that uh, is is obviously talking about more than just the sacrament. And then he goes on to talk in verses four through six, saying, "For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened." And then he goes on in verse 6, uh, who then fell away to be restored to repentance because they are crucifying the Son of God again to their own harm and exposing him to public ridicule. Uh, this is talking about the sin against the Holy Spirit. It's saying that uh, you are in danger of this sin against the Holy Spirit. Uh, that If you commit the sin against the Holy Spirit, that's unbelief. It's saying uh, you do not believe in Christ as your Savior. It's saying at one point uh, you were a believer, but then you took on these unchristian teachings. And I, I thought of that when studying about a young lady years ago that came and talked to me, and she was honest and said, Pastor, I think I like girls. So she was struggling with this sin. But now she has moved in with her girlfriend. And uh, you know, we talked about the sin of homosexuality in catechism classes in high school and in that conversation. So she knows what the sin is, but now she has rejected everything she learned in catechism from her church, from her family, and now she is willfully rejecting it toward her own spiritual harm. And that's what the writer is saying is, is the danger. So you wouldn't say that, I, I think if it's the sin against the Holy Spirit, then it's even more intense than, it's something even worse than unbelief. 
uh, it, 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 unbelief is included, but the sin against the Holy Spirit is when you actually accuse the Holy Spirit's work of being the devil's work. In other words, you say this, uh, you know, the sacraments or the word of God is actually the word of the devil or the work of the devil. And uh, that is the only reason that that cannot be forgiven is because you've cut yourself off from the only channel of forgiveness. Um, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, or maybe I'm, I'm trying to ask you is, um, is it, uh, this isn't saying here that uh, somebody who becomes an unbeliever can never possibly be, it becomes a believer and then falls out of faith, they can never possibly come back to faith again. That's, right. not, that's not what this is teaching. Right, and what's interesting too, the EHV notes point out that uh, they translated it in verse 6, uh, so it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, uh, who then fell away to be restored. Because, and what that means of because, because they had fallen away that they can't come back. But another way to translate that word because could be while. And what that means is uh, that as they continue in these sins, like the example I gave of that young lady, while she's holding on to that sin, she can't come back to her faith. She has to be repentant of it. Uh, the word because is because she had given herself over to that kind of lifestyle and therefore making that her God instead of making really her flesh her God mm -hmm. instead of God in the flesh of Christ being her God. Well, now she is because of that. Now she has given up her faith. Yes, but repentance can lead you back. Mm -hmm. But if you continue in that unbelief, that's where you get to what you were talking about, yeah, the, the sin, sin for the Holy Spirit. The sin against the Holy Spirit, you can't uh, come back from. Right. So uh, if, insofar as this is talking about the sin against the Holy Spirit, we really can't even uh, point out. God, even Jesus himself, uh, did not say, you Pharisees or teachers of the law are sinning against the Holy Spirit. He just warned them about it. He just said, uh, this is a thing. If you sin against the Holy Spirit, you can't get forgiveness. Um, uh, so it's not something that uh, uh, we can necessarily see as humans. It's just uh, th this. And I, yeah, I like that. I see that note in, in this EHV Bible, too. Uh, instead of because they are crucifying, it says it could also say while they are crucifying. As long as they persist in uh, crucifying the Son of God all over again, as long as they stubbornly persist in that, they, uh, there's no forgiveness. And then the writer goes on to use an illustration for people who have continually rejected Christ and the Holy Spirit in saying that now this is a land that is barren, uh, that those who have turned away have made themselves like worthless land, uh, not the former kind of land that's blessed by God. And there, uh, my daughter and I had started putting in a, a lasagna garden. Do you know what a lasagna garden is, Jeremy? Um, it, my first instinct is uh, all the possible ingredients that you could grow to uh, make lasagna. It is not that. Okay. Uh, what it is, is I was just going to put a tarp down on the ground just to kill the grass to put a garden in, in the spring. And my neighbor said, you should plant a lasagna garden. So I studied it. I didn't know either. And what it is, is, is layers of green and brown. So we laid down brown, which would be paper, and then greens like weeds and dead plants and uh, leaves, and then 
cardboard and then you know things like that green and brown so over winter they start to break down to decompose you're trying to get the worms to come up uh-huh. and then creating good soil so my daughter who is an agricultural engineer she doesn't call it dirt it's soil hmm. and it's all about you have to have good soil to have good crops hmm. to have a good garden but what this is talking about is what my daughter talks about all the time too is that farmers are burning out their their soil by overplanting too much fertilizer, the wrong kind of fertilizer, or even just any kind of accidental spill, things like that, and now the, that soil isn't any good anymore. That's what the writer's talking about here, that this once fertile soil that they could grow faith in, like Jesus' parable of the seed growing up 30, 60, 100 times more than was sown, it's not going to do any of that because it's now it's bad soil because they're letting sin and thorns and thistles grow up there. So now I know what a lasagna garden is. That's right. I learned something new today. Um, in uh, verses 13 and following, uh, the writer of the Hebrews tells us uh, another about another Old Testament character, and we get to Abraham, uh, and he talks about... Uh, Abraham swearing by, uh, or God swearing by himself. Uh, and it, it's an interesting thought here uh, when it says that God will bless you, bless Abraham and increase his, him in number. Um, uh, no, I, I kind of lost my place now. Oh, it is it's, uh, the idea of people swearing by someone who is greater um, then the, then an oath ends all disputes. Uh, if you if you make an oath, uh, that should really settle the matter, uh, which is also why Jesus tells us so often to be careful about uh, not making oaths willy-nilly. Yeah, and he uses Abraham as a model for the Jewish people. And so here he's linking Christ with Abraham. He speaks about that oath, like you said, that is God's promise to Abraham. And... In verse 15, he says, and so in this way, after Abraham had waited patiently. Well, well, Jeremy, how did Abraham wait patiently for his promise? This isn't a trick question, is it? No. Because I I was going to say, you could point to some evidence that he wasn't so patient uh, with uh, thinking that he had to give his inheritance to his servant or uh, having a child with uh, the maidservant. But uh, but he's still... You could say he waited patiently because uh, he had to wait till he was 100. Yeah, exactly. He was 75 years old when God spoke to him and told him to move. And then waiting another 25 years to have a child, as God promised him, you're going to have as many children as there are sands on the seashore and stars in the sky. And he doesn't have any kids yet. Uh, and, And yet he waited patiently. Uh, for the fulfillment of God's promise to have what he had hoped for. Uh, We get the uh, character of Melchizedek in chapter 7, and uh, his name means uh, king of Salem, uh, or king of righteousness, and and he was a priest of God Most High. Uh, And again, uh, the writer of the Hebrews is trying to show the Jewish people how the, as much as they may love their heritage and their uh, history as, as a nation, uh, 
Christ is superior to that, um, just as Melchizedek was actually superior to Abraham. Um, and so uh, what, what, what do you want to mention about that? Well, one thing is now the writer is getting into some of that solid food of Melchizedek is, is not milk. This is solid food. Uh, and then verse 2 and 3, he talks about how Melchizedek resembles Jesus, the Son of God, in two ways, that he is both a king and a priest. You know, you and I taught this for years in catechism class, the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Melchizedek is a king and a priest, and he is without beginning or end because there's no record in Scripture of Melchizedek having a father, mother. He did, but it's mm-hmm. not recorded, and there's no record of the end of his life, nor, any, nor is there any record of his successors. So therefore, he is a priest forever, and, uh, and therefore, Christ is in the order of Melchizedek in the same kind of way that uh, you know, Melchizedek didn't have a beginning or end. Jesus is without beginning or end, the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, and he just appears on the scene. You know, I see the words you have printed on, the, on your whiteboard back there. The word became flesh and tented, tabernacled mm-hmm. in our midst, that that's Christ. All of a sudden he just appears. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's kind of a, a neat little play on words or not, not a play on words, but just a, a play on the situation. The situation is we, we don't know. Like you said, Melchizedek uh, in all likelihood did have a physical, biological set of parents. But as far as we know, uh, he didn't. And as far as we know, it, he might as well still be alive today. Uh, he probably isn't. But uh, the fact that the Bible doesn't record his demise or, or anything after this episode with Abraham uh, makes him a lot like Jesus. And then he goes on in verses 10 and following saying that Melchizedek and therefore by implication, Jesus was greater than Abraham. So he just built up how great Abraham was in the previous chapter and how he waited patiently for the Lord's promise. Now Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. For, uh, for at least three reasons. Because he received a tenth from Abraham after Abraham defeated the kings of Sodom. Do I have that right? Yeah, mm-hmm. the kings of Sodom. And then he gave a tenth. He, he rescued them. He rescued from, them. Yeah. And then he gave a tenth of his spoils to Melchizedek. Uh, second, he blessed Abraham and not Abraham blessing Melchizedek. And... Uh, he received a tenth even from those who themselves usually receive the tenth, meaning the descendants of Levi. Uh, and Jew- Jewish Christians, to whom the writer is addressing this letter, would understand that for Jesus to be greater than the father Abraham, Jesus would need to be God himself. Uh, and uh, you, you have to imagine all of these uh, Israelites constantly bringing their offerings to the Lev- Lev- levitical priests and uh, wow these these priests must be pretty important because we are giving them of our wealth in order to sustain them uh, and and so they they're very highly revered and and they're a big deal but then uh, the way that the writer puts it is Levi was still in Abraham's body and Abraham gave a uh, offering to Melchizedek so that that it's just this way that you never would have thought of uh, the genealogy in the Old Testament but it is true that this means 
if, if you're in, if you're a priest or a prophet or a king like Melchizedek, then you are superior to Abraham because uh, you are getting offerings from Abraham. And then verse 15, he writes, and this becomes even clearer if another priest arises like Melchizedek, who became a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement about physical descent, but on the basis of the power of an endless life. Uh, what he's saying there is that uh, eternal salvation was not possible through the Levitical priesthood, back what you were talking about in verse 11, the Savior needed to be a different kind of priest, a priest like Mel Melchizedek, one who is eternal. Uh, and then it goes on in verse 16 to say that there are those who inherit their position uh, and those who merit their position. So I like that play on words, inherit versus merit, that the Levitical priests inherited their position. Jesus merited his position as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, he is superior. Because again, that's the theme that runs through Hebrews, the writer saying Jesus is superior to all of these. And in this chapter, he is superior to the Jewish priests. And we would talk that way even in society today. Like it's people look up much, they're, they're much more admiring of somebody who uh, built a, a nest egg of wealth uh, than somebody who just inherited it. If, if you just get it because your parents are rich and they they write you into their will, uh, that's that's no big deal. But if somebody actually works for it and earns a, a huge sum of wealth, um, that's the way that the writer here is talking about Jesus. Uh, the other priests, they just got to be priests because they were uh, born into the right family. Uh, Jesus is a high priest because he actually was holy. And then going on to verses 26 through 28, uh, the Old Testament high priests and the high priest of Jesus uh, were, are co being contrasted here, that the Old Testament high priests were sinners. And, well, because they're sinners, they died. So this indicates how impermanent they were. They were not God's final answer to finding someone to serve his people. Jesus, however, is perfect and therefore he lives forever. He is exalted above the heavens. He serves us before the throne of heaven. Uh, verse 27, unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices on a daily ba basis, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Uh, he sacrificed for sins once for all when he offered himself. That's one of those Sadie's doctrinae, the, the key doctrine passages. So what that's saying is you could tell that the Old Testament sacrifices, as important as they were, they didn't really take away people's sins. I like to say they, uh, they emphasize the sins because you had to keep uh, doing the sacrifices. Uh, they didn't fix the problem. Mm -hmm. It would be like... You know, I grew up on a farm and, you know, I watched my dad do this for years and I picked up on this too. I have no idea how to fix anything. So I, if I have to fix something, it's a temporary fix with, uh, wa with wire, bailing twine, or duct tape. <laughs> but those are not permanent solutions. They can hold things together for a little while. Mm -hmm. Like my daughter had uh, her muffler had fallen out. And so she was smart and she used zip ties. Mm. Well, that's all she had. She zip tied it up until she could get to the muffler place for them to fix it. A permanent solution. Yeah. 
in the Old Testament sacrifices were like zip ties. You had to keep replacing those zip ties because you keep burning them out. Mm -hmm. But eventually you got to fix it once and for all. And that's what Jesus did. That uh, is a good illustration. I always have heard the one uh, in the section with the Old Testament sacrifices that they're kind of like checks that uh, would, would not a lot of people write checks these days. You more often uh, swipe your card or read your chip. But uh, the, the check itself is really not valuable. Um, it is the, the money in the bank account that makes it valuable. Uh, and, and if it, there's always the threat of a check bouncing because it doesn't have sufficient funds. Well, um, what I've heard described is the Old Testament sacrifices are like checks. They really did pay, in a sense, for the sin, the ritualistic process of, of sacrificing uh, atoned for the sin. And, and that was a real atonement in God's sight, but it was only an atonement because of the once for all sacrifice. That's kind of the money in the bank uh, that Jesus made, uh, that, that Jesus once for all sacrifice uh, is the only thing that validated all of those other uh, sacrifices uh, in the same way that, uh, you know, the gold standard or, or uh, cash in your account makes your makes your checks not bounce. Well, that's a good illustration, too. Uh, so I think our listeners should should let us know which one of those illustrations they like better. Cause <laughs> let's, have, let's have a competition. Well, that's what I said last night. We had someone over the house, and I said, everything is a competition. The only people who say it's not a competition are the losers. <laughs> well, I'm glad I called it a competition. That's then. right. Are you ready to go on to Chapter 8? I think so. All right. So you can go ahead and um, pick it up. Well, the, the writer continues to talk about the work of Jesus as our high priest and um, what a, an important thing that is. The chapter 7 ends by saying that uh, uh, we normally have priests who are, are weak, uh, and, and you could think also of pastors uh, or, or any, any type of uh, go-between uh, between God and the people. Uh, even you yourself, as uh, we're all priests in the universe, in the uh, priesthood of all believers, we have weaknesses. But uh, Jesus has no weaknesses. Um, he is the one that is uh, truly, he lives. I guess I, I guess I wasn't quite done with chapter 7, but it's a nice springboard into chapter 8. Um, it, it says he lives in order to make intercession for us. So he really enjoys his work. If you think of Jesus uh, talking to God on your behalf and just pleading with him and, and begging him for all the things that he can do to help you, um, he really enjoys that. It's not a, a burden for him at all. He lives to make intercession for them. And he makes intercession uh, in verse 1 of chapter 8 saying, we have the kind of high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Uh, there, Jesus has ascended in heaven, taken his place at the right hand of God to continue to serve as our high priest. So he served as high priest here on earth by making the sacrifice and then being the sacrificial lamb. But he continues his role as high priest in heaven, interceding for us. So one of the things I like to say uh, before we pray the prayer of the church, I'll have the congregation stand and say, now let us uh, approach the throne of grace with our prayers. But what I don't say, maybe I need to say this, is we're, we're approaching the throne of grace, but it only is through Christ's sacrifice uh, 
and him interceding for us, making our prayers acceptable. Uh, and then verse two, uh, now uh, the writer is comparing Jesus to the tabernacle. He says he is the minister of the, in the holy place, which is the true sanctuary, uh, which the Lord set up, not man. Uh, and what he's talking about there is that uh, Jesus is greater than the tabernacle that Moses had set up in the wilderness. That was just a copy of what's in heaven. And there I was thinking, I, I used to like watching these shows on TV of people searching for uh, lost movie props and then making sure when they found the movie props, it wasn't enough to find the movie prop. You had to find the prominence of that it was actually used by this actor in this movie. So like if I have a replica of Luke Skywalker's uh, lightsaber in the, f the first episode of Star Wars, well, that's pretty cool. But it's not as cool or worth anywhere near what the uh, movie used uh, lightsaber by Mark Hamill is hmm. or Judy Garland's uh, Rudy, uh, Ruby Red Slippers mm -hmm. in Wizard of Oz, anything like that. It's great to have copies, but when you have the real thing, it's under lock and key, it's under glass and so forth. It's in the museum. And that's what Jesus, what the writer is saying, Jesus is greater because he's not in the copy here on earth. And, and the, the tabernacle he's serving in is the real one. It's that, what was that word you used? Prominence? Pro, yeah. I, I don't know that word. Can you... I'll, I'll look it up. You have you. to, well, I mean, it sounded like you used it, right? I just, sorry, I, I just, uh, that's, that's a neat word. Um, I just wish I knew what it meant. Um, and, and this is good. If, if, if you and I don't know what it means, then I bet listeners don't either. I do and know what it means. We're, we're finding out for, you, yeah, for you, it's for the listeners. It's for the listeners. Yeah, you just keep, you just keep talking. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I, as I'm looking at the second half of the chapter, that you made the comment, uh, well, I could write a New Testament book of the Bible just by quoting Old Testament passages. And uh, that's kind of what the second half of this chapter looks like. Um, but uh, I, I didn't totally finish my thought on the uh, sanctuary, the tabernacle, uh, the the earthly, yeah, the the. Jewish people who are being tempted to be drawn back into their Old Testament faith, even though Christ has come, that's who the author is writing to here. And uh, they, they might be looking at all that uh, history of the tabernacle. And that is, uh, again, uh, Pastor Zarling referenced the poster that I have on my whiteboard right now of the tabernacle. And you can just imagine little Jewish boys and girls uh, learning all about this tent and the dimensions of it and the colors of it and uh, getting engrossed with the, the beautiful tapestry and history and then uh, thinking to themselves, this is what it's all about. And here the writer to the Hebrews comes along and says, yeah, that tabernacle was great, but it was just the copy. The real high priest is in the real tabernacle. That's Jesus with his human body in heaven right now. You are right in challenging me on that word. So it's, it's either prominence which is that you're prominent, but it, well, the word I, I wanted to use was provenance, to prove something. Provenance. Provenance. So okay. to, to have the provenance that Mark Hamill or Judy Garland use this on the movies, you prove it. There's and so that's a good some, some way to 
establish the yeah. fact. And, and I think that's a good word to use here because that's what the writer is trying to show of Jesus' provenance, that he's greater. Perfect. Uh, I, I pulled it out. Th- I'm glad you did. And, uh, I, and I, I, was, I was tap dancing the whole time here. Uh, I talked about the quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Jeremiah where the uh, uh, prophet Jeremiah makes promises about the covenant that God makes. Um, and uh, I know we always say this in, in the communion liturgy when we hear the words of institution, uh, the covenant is a one-sided deal. Normally a covenant is like a contract. You have to hold up your end of the bargain and I have to hold up my end. Uh, otherwise the contract is broken. Well here, uh, the covenant or testament, whatever uh, word you want to use, is uh, talking about the deal that God makes with us where he says, how about I do all the work and you get all the benefit? Yeah, and to understand that the old covenant, that there is nothing wrong with it. God said, you do this and I'll do this for you. It's kind of like when I tell my girls, uh, you know, God's love for you is unconditional. My love for you is very conditional. So straighten up, okay? <laughs> because, uh, you know, they'll do things And there's a back and forth. Now, my love is still unconditional, but God's love for them was also unconditional, but he had conditions. You do this and this is going to happen. But verse nine, uh, it says that they ignored the covenant. Uh, And that means that they didn't pay attention to it. They neglected it. Israel did not live up to the covenant that God made with them. And so... uh, what happened is God let misfortune come on them, you know, like the invaders uh, in from Canaan, the, the Moabites, Midianites, Philistines, and so forth. Every time the Israelites ignored the covenant that God made with them, God let, he opened up, he removed his grace for a time, and the people came in. Uh, that God had this covenant with them, they ignored God, and so God said, all right, for 70 years, you're going to be carried off into captivity in Babylon. And now God says through Jesus, he's making a one-sided covenant. And yeah, and then we use those words in the communion liturgy as well. That uh, Jesus gives us his body and blood for free and uh, forgiveness along with it. Uh, and no part of that is an end of the bargain that we have to hold up. Um, I just had one more comment on chapter 8, and that's in verse 13. Uh, When God said new, he made the first covenant obsolete, and something that is obsolete and growing old is going to disappear. Uh, This reminds me of uh, something I just discussed in a chapel devotion here at the high school on Thursday, uh, yesterday actually, when we are recording this. Um, It it was based on the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 21, where Jesus says, uh, look, I am making everything new. And uh, I wanted to make the point to the students, and I hope I can make this clear to the listeners now, too, that new in the Bible does not really mean 
unprecedented or, or something totally innovative and, and uh, completely different every time that it happens. So, for instance, when it says, sing to the Lord a new song in the Psalms, that doesn't mean every time that you make music at church, it has to be a completely different set of notes than you've ever sung before or a completely different style than you've ever done before. Uh, that, that would be exhausting. And when it says uh, the new heavens and the new earth, um, it, it doesn't mean it will be, or that when Jesus says, I'm making everything new uh, in the next life, he doesn't mean uh, it will be completely different and unprecedented and always changing from what it was before. Uh, no, this verse in verse 13 of chapter 8 in Hebrews is a good illustration. New means not worn out. It means uh, something that uh, is never needing to be replaced, uh, something that is uh, not obsolete or growing old. Um, uh, it means always, maybe a better way to say it is always renewed, not different and, and changing all the time, but uh, durable. Yeah, I like that point. And then one last thing I had on verse 13 too is that when the writer is giving this letter to the Hebrews, the temple is still standing. And yet he says the sacrifices inside that temple are obsolete through Christ, which is interesting that just a few years later in 70 AD, when the Romans come in and they destroy the temple, that Jesus says not a single stone is left, uh, not turned over, you know, then the sacrifices really do literally become obsolete. They just can't do the sacrifices anymore because they don't have a temple in which to do them. Uh, what's kind of interesting when you look at the big picture of this whole book of Hebrews is the progression that the author makes. I, I assume now we're moving on to chapter 9. And uh, what's interesting is uh, we began the book by talking about angels and how uh, angels are great, but Jesus is superior to the angels. Uh, and then uh, we get into talking about Melchizedek and Abraham and uh, all of these uh, characters uh, from Old Testament history. And you can kind of see uh, the author of Hebrews sort of narrowing the, the circle of focus even more. Because when you're talking about Abraham, you're uh, focused on all the descendants of Abraham. That would be this whole nation of the Hebrew people. And then uh, he, he narrows it even more to the Levites, just one tribe. And it's a very important tribe. It's the tribe that uh, takes care of the religious business in the temple or the tabernacle when that was in place. Uh, and now in chapter nine, we're uh, narrowing the focus of attention even more. Uh, he's saying, let's not just talk about the Jewish people in general or the Levites in particular. Now let's talk about the articles uh, in the in the Ark of the Covenant and and in the uh, in the temple. Yeah, and, and in the most holy place. And I like that uh, what you were saying too. On I thought of how he's narrowing it. Uh, so here, yeah, the, the writer draws his main lesson from the high priest duties on the great day of atonement. And if you haven't read this lately, listeners, read Leviticus 16. It is 
it was one of my pleasures taking people through the my adult catechism class and just reading that great day of atonement and then describing it that the sights and sounds and smells even of that great day of atonement. And that's the only day that the high priest is able to go into the most holy place uh, one day a year. And all of the shedding of blood, of sprinkling blood on the laver, on the, on the altar. The laver is the, the big basin used for washing before and after the, the sacrifices, sprinkling the blood on the curtains, onto the Ark of the Covenant, and so forth. And what he's saying here is that uh, the, the high priest entering the most holy place with blood, it's showing his imperfection. Uh, also, the gifts and sacrifice uh, offered in the writer's day were also unable to purify the consciences of, their wor- of the worshipers. What he's going on to prove in this chapter is the whole purpose of the Old Testament laws and regulations was not to actually take away sin. It was to emphasize sin. It was to point ahead to Jesus Christ. He is, on the great day of atonement, he is the great high priest. He is also the scapegoat on which the high priest would lay the sins of the people and then usher it off into the wilderness to die, that your sins are gone, never to return. And he is also the, the lamb of sacrifice, that the second goat that was offered on the altar, that Jesus is that sacrificial lamb laid on, on the altar. Uh, and... You you can just see just as you were you were talking about uh, the Leviticus uh, sixteen and the Great Day of Atonement is the you said sixteen right yes okay I didn't know that so thank you for knowing that uh, it, it, that is uh, the very center of the Torah the the most sacred set of books for for all Jewish people those first five books of the Bible uh, if you look at the the very middle of those books it centers in on the, the Great Day of Atonement. Look at that. No, I just learned that. It, it's, well, I have to credit, uh, uh, is it Doc John Lavrens or La- okay. Lorenz? Uh, he, he told us that once in a, at a pastor's so conference. So kind of like the Psalms are the middle of our English Bibles. Oftentimes you need to go oh, to Psalms you, you just open it up. right open to it, yeah. yeah. And then it, Leviticus 16 is the... Well, that's all Hebrew writing is in the Old Testament. We're, we're going to put the most important point mm-hmm. at the middle. And the Great Day of Atonement was that important. It's a chiasm. Yes, exactly. So that's, you want to explain what a chiasm uh, is? So the letter chi or key in Greek is... Uh, uh, it, it looks like our X, and and if you're writing along, uh, you make point A, and then you, then you make a different point B, and then you repeat point B in the next line, and and repeat point A after that in the same line. Uh, you then you connect A and B. Uh, you've made the you've made an X. You've made the letter the Greek letter chi, and uh, the X marks the spot of what the author, at least in Hebrew, many Hebrew writings, what the author thinks is the most important point. Right. So unlike our English writing, or, you know, I think of a sermon, I'll put out the main point in the beginning, and then, you know, I kind of do it like a big circle, and I'm kind of coming back around so I can review that, la- that first point again at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're thinking of a novel, you know, they save the big ending, uh, well, toward the end. For you know, the last, The big yeah. reveal. 
but the reveal in Hebrew writing is in the middle. Mm-hmm. It's totally foreign to our Western way of thinking. Which, when now that I'm thinking of this book called Hebrews, I think it would be interesting oh. to figure out what is the, what is the middle of this book because that's probably where uh, the, the author is putting one of the most important points. Um, but it, the point that I was trying to make about the Great Day of Atonement is uh, now the author is taking one of the most sacred things for Jewish people, the great day of atonement in the Holy of Holies place in, in Jewish geography, uh, in, in world history really is this holy, this most holy place. And then the, the writer to the Hebrews says, uh, yep, Jesus is even better than that. And it's a good thing because in verse nine, he says, uh, the tent is only a picture. The gifts and sacrifices that are brought there are not, not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. <laughs> if they're not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper, then why offer them? Well, it's again, because it's pointing ahead to, to Christ, uh, that their sins were really not cleared until verse 11, when Christ appeared as the high priest, then he went through the greater and more complete tent that uh, the Judaism, the Old Testament sacrifices of the priests, they had endless repetition in contrast to the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. And you know that Christ's sacrifice was superior because he entered the tabernacle of of heaven where God dwells not, and not dwelling, uh, not dwelling here on earth in smoke, like the old Testament tabernacle. And, and I thought of this in the, uh, the funeral I had the other day, uh, revelation 21, I think was the epistle lesson where it talks about that. The saints will see God face to face, uh, and he has a human face because he was born uh, of Mary. Yeah, and where why that's important is here on earth, God is here. He is present. Wherever two or three are gathered, he is present in word and sacrament, and yet we cannot see him. But there in heaven, we shall see him face to face uh, because he has, a, like you said, he has a very human face. Uh I know that uh, you love hymnody and that uh, you'll often bring up uh, the, the new hymnal and, and hymn stanzas. Uh, this makes me, this section makes me think of, uh, and I'm looking now, <coughs> excuse me, I'm looking now at uh, verses 13 and 14, uh, the Lenten hymn, not all the blood of beasts on Israel's altar slain could give the guilty conscience peace or take away the stain. Uh, I think I got that right. Uh, it might have been take away the pain. No, it's stain. Think stain. It's stain. Uh, at any rate, um, th- there, there are a lot of great Lenten thoughts here, uh, how the sacrifice of Jesus is the superior one to all of the blood that was shed on the great day of atonement and, and uh, on Israel's altars in the Old Testament. And another thought that was brought up in my study is that throughout this book, uh, the writer is combating the idea in these Jewish minds that Jesus' death was helpless. Uh, He's combating the idea that an act of salvation could happen through someone's death. But here's where the writer is, is saying in verses 16 and 17, for where a will exists, it was necessary to establish the death of the one who made the will. 
for a will takes effect at the time of death, since it is never enforced when the one who made the will is still living. So for you know, my, my daughters to gain anything that's in her house, I don't know if we have anything that's really worth worthwhile, uh, but those things that, that are there that they treasure, what's the only way they can get them, Jeremy? If you give it to them. If I give it to them. And it's will to them. If I die and it's written in my will for them to have. They only get it if you die. They only get it if I die. Otherwise, it's mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's what he's saying is we can only have everything that God wants to give us. If there's a death. If there's a death. And, and that's so Jesus' death is not uh, a weakness. It's not wasn't because he was helpless. He gave up his spirit. He willingly died so that we could have what the father, we could have the inheritance from our father. How about those uh, wood carvings from the Holy Land? Do you think that that would be something your daughters might want? No. No, not even that. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what they would want that I that I have that's really treasured, but yeah, uh, maybe maybe the baptismal font that I turned into a sink or the the pump organ that I turned into a bar. You know sure. those kind of creative things. So. Piano turned into a desk. Those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, as we uh, as we wrap up chapter nine, we are really blitzkrieging through a lot of uh, heavy and important stuff. Uh, and uh, so you're going to ha- kind of have to look at it, uh, dear listeners, as a an overview more than a, an in-depth study. Um, and even the writer to the Hebrews uh, says it that way. Uh, he says in verse five of this chapter, we are not going to talk about these things in detail now. Uh, even he is like, uh, we're just going to have to do a quick overview, but uh, still, it's some some deep stuff. Um, the, the one thing that I always think of uh, in the closing verses of the chapter is uh, where it says that Jesus did not enter uh, heaven to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the most holy place year after year that blood is with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer many times since the creation of the world. And uh, I love that piece of logic there, that that tight little argument, because um, this is what shows you in particular that uh, the the Roman Catholic notion of the sacrifice of the mass uh, that that a priest has to offer up Jesus as a non-bloody sacrifice in order to get forgiveness, uh, that is completely unbiblical. Uh, The writer to the Hebrews says it's here. If that were a thing, then uh, Jesus would have had to be uh, died and sacrificed many times uh, in the Old Testament as well. But uh, no, the one sacrifice uh, at this last era of history of Christ on the cross is enough to cover both sins into the future and sins of the past. And uh, now I brought all this up with the Roman Catholic idea of the sacrifice of the mass because that's where my mind always goes when we cover the, when I cover this section of scripture, but maybe uh, what is a way for um, uh, Lutherans who we're not really in any danger of uh, teaching the sacrifice of the mass at our church or in our churches. Um, So what are some ways where we could apply to ourselves this notion that you don't need a lot of sacrifices over and over uh, in in this day and age, you only need the one sacrifice of Jesus. Yeah, the thought that comes to my mind with that is I talk about Lutheran penance, that we may not, 
you know, our, as Lutherans, we're, you know we're, we're saved by grace alone. Yeah, we're saved by grace alone. That's pounded into us. We're not, we're not saved by our works. Mm-hmm. And yet, then uh, the thing that comes to my mind is then we feel guilt. And because we know Christ has taken away our sins, well, that seems too easy. Mm-hmm. So we have to make ourselves feel guiltier or, than we or should. We, or we feel guilty for not feeling guilty enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of, I always call that Lutheran penance. That's where I think of, there may be other, other works that mm-hmm. we do as Christians, but that's the one that comes to my mind. No, that's, that's a perfect example of what I, I kind of was thinking was uh, th- that we think, uh, well, yes, Jesus died for my sins, but I've still, I must still have to do something in order to get other good stuff in life. And uh, no, all of God's gifts are by grace alone. And uh, this is also a verse that's good for pointing out uh, there's... <laughs> There's no, I, I'm going to sound like I'm really harping on the Roman Catholics today, but there's no such thing as purgatory. Uh, not only does the Bible never mention it, but the writer to the Hebrews here says, it is appointed for people to die only once, and after this comes the judgment. Uh, you, you don't go through a purging process after you die. You go either to heaven or hell when you die, and uh, that's, that's facing the judgment. And that flows perfectly with a question I had in my Revelation Bible study today on chapter 20. Uh, someone asked, well, but, aren't, but people are already in heaven. Why are they being taken out of heaven for judgment day? I said, yeah. But I said, it's kind of, the example I used was the confirmation classes uh, or confirmation ceremonies we have in our congregation is uh, we do examination and confirmation like your son last year all on the same day. And the kids get really nervous, even though I'm way easier than your dad was on you and my pastor was on me. And yet they get freaked out. They're throwing up the night before and so forth. And I remind them, no, you're going to be confirmed. Even if you bomb, Mm. you're not going to come and we have a gown and a boutonniere for you and your parents and grandparents have all come. They're going to have a party for you. And then, oh, you're not going to be confirmed. No. It's a done deal. Mm-hmm. You're going to be confirmed. And that's what uh, the example I use that, yes, the saints are already in heaven. I've done two funerals the last two weeks for Arlene, who is 93, and Bill, who is 98. They're in heaven. But on judgment day, their souls will come out of heaven to meet their bodies. And then there is the formal declaration of judgment day. It's not making a decision, it's announcing yes. the verdict. And, and this actually, again, goes back to my chapel devotion on Thursday. Um, the, the Revelation 21 says not that on Judgment Day we, all the believers go up body and soul to heaven. Actually, when you look at it, what it says is heaven comes down to earth. The bride comes down beautifully dressed for her husband. All the believers, it, you really shouldn't think of resurrection as leaving heaven. It's just reuniting body and soul so that then body and soul can live in the bliss of it, and I don't even like saying heaven. Mm-hmm. It's not heaven. It's the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, your body and soul can live in the perfect uh, universe that will be recreated on the last day. Yeah. In, in the new city of Jerusalem, it says in 21. Uh, the last verse I wanted to mention is, is verse 28. So also Christ was offered only once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time without sin to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him. So again, he took away sins with his first, 
with his first appearance. And, you know, we're just a few weeks away from celebrating Christmas. He came humbly. And yet I just preached on this Wednesday night on Psalm 24. Who is this? The King of glory. You know, lift up, uh, you know, lift up your heads. Lift up your gates for the King of glory is coming in. That he came humbly in a manger. He laid humbly on the cross. He laid humbly in the tomb. But he's not coming humbly the second time. He is coming and every eye will see him, even those that pierced him, and every knee shall bow, those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, And when he comes, it's not just going to be the angels filling up the Bethlehem sky, giving glory to God. It's going to be all the angels, all of Christ's saints. My phone that had my uh, little timer on it died. So, uh, and it was already over 50 minutes. We took over 50 minutes to do not five chapters, but four chapters. But we covered them really well, Jeremy. We did, we did. So next week, we will conclude our study of Hebrews. It's also going to be the final episode for this year. So we'll study four chapters, uh, Hebrews 10 through 13, uh, and so this is Pastor Zarling with Supreme Leader Snoke. Do you know who that is? Of course not. No. So just like the tabernacle was a copy of the real thing, so Snoke was probably a clone, a copy of the real thing, Emperor Palpatine. Oh, okay. See how he tied it all in there? Okay, yeah. now I remember that. Yeah. yeah, so stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>